0: Hey there, you're with Disembodied Podcast. This is Evie Escher. This week, my guest is Laura Hartley. She's an activist, a coach, and the founder of Public Love Enterprises, which is an online school that empowers changemakers to radically reimagine the world, co-creating the conditions for social healing and collective thriving. Laura views self-work and world work as interconnected, and her work is centered around helping change agents get free, dismantling capitalism and oppressive systems from the inside out, getting power, and figuring out what work to do with that power. In a nutshell, Laura is helping people help the world with less burnout, more impact, and greater fulfillment. So other things that Laura likes to address are cultural detoxing, the intersection of spirituality and social change, embodiment, mindfulness, and somatics, and community, purpose, and politics as embodied spirituality. Laura is originally from Sydney, Australia, and currently living in Toronto, but we'll also touch on some of the other places that she's lived, like Amsterdam, among other cities you know, I love a world traveler. <laughs> so sit tight. Here we go. Laura, welcome to Disembodied Podcast. It's great
1: to have you. Ah, Thank you so much for having me on the show. It is an honor to be here.
0: I'm interested in your past. If you grew up in a new age spirituality inspired household, how did you take it in when you were a kid? Did you like it or did you not like it?
1: Oh gosh, that's a good question. You know, my upbringing has had a huge influence on who I am today and the work that I do today. But yeah, the house I grew up in, my mother was not only a coach, but she ran one of the first life coach training schools in Australia. So coaching and personal development and uh, kind of new age spirituality was something that I grew up with and was surrounded by from a very, very young age. And some of my earliest memories are you know, being in the car and having to listen. I just desperately wanted the radio, but like having to listen to Wayne Dyer or Louise Hay or Neil Donald Walsh or Deepak Chopra or any, any number of these people. And you could even take a bit further, like Dennis Waitley and, you know, Florence Scovel Shin, start to name your people. At the time, I, you know, I couldn't stand it. I, you know, I was a very ordinary kid that was like, I just don't want to listen to this. But it did seep a lot of it into my subconscious. And, you know as i work now there are elements that i found that are incredibly helpful and beneficial and have really shaped who i am and there's elements that i've also kind of learned sometimes are also a little bit problematic those teachings in the world today but it's definitely had a big influence which ones do you
0: think are problematic
1: Oh, so I I love this question because I think sometimes, you know, the way I I phrased it the other day is, you know, self-help without having a collective lens, without a lens for the liberation and love of everybody, is sometimes just a form of co-opted capitalism. You know, so whenever we're talking about manifestation, you know, I think our thoughts shape our reality. I think we're far more powerful than we believe. I think all of us deserve flourishing, thriving lives. But I think if we're teaching these methods without also looking at the context of the climate crisis, without also looking in the context of the wildlife loss that we see in the world, then we're kind of missing one half of the equation. You know, we're teaching these practices as purely about us, when I actually think that when we can turn our lens outward into the love and liberation of all, that that gives us a wider dimension to work with and a wider sense of spirituality.
0: Yeah, I do think that it can be a little bit of a selfish path for some people to always dwell on what is going to make their life better in particular. I agree in a way. Which things resonated with you
1: with the new age spirituality? So one of the greatest things that I think I learned at a young age was that we have far more choice and power to choose in our lives than most of us think we do. You know, that we create our lives and that that really is in the sense that we choose how we respond to things or we have the power to choose how we respond to things, uh, that we have the power to choose where we put our efforts into the world as to what we want to create, that just be- we don't have to say, oh, this is just the way the world is, you know, that's just the way life is you know, so many of us do. It's a very apathetic, powerless response. And I think some of those teachings taught me from a very young age that actually we have power and we have agency. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I think as well, you know, growing up the way that I did, you know, I I think I must have been seven, eight years old when my mother first started to encourage me to learn to meditate. So it was, you know, from a very young age that it was like, okay, like, let's sit down and see what, you know, let's focus on our breath and things. And Not gonna lie, I hated it. I wasn't very good. You know, it kind of came in and out of meditation for the next, you know, couple of decades. But these two places of learning that I have an inner world, that I have the capacity to turn inward, and that I have power over my life and my actions and how I respond to things were really big teachings for me.
0: Do you think that you had any, like, even as a kid when you meditated on occasion, perhaps, did you have anything? that you remember about that? Do, do you have like any experience that was
1: kind of encouraging you to keep meditating? I remember, and this is less so about meditation, but you know, the, the interesting, you know, part of my story, I suppose, is although I grew up in a wonderfully beautiful house that really encouraged me to look within, by the time I reached adolescence, I had uh, really crippling mental health issues. I had really severe depression, um, terrible anxiety, and, a lot of kind of uh, inner turmoil going on. And I remember doing a lot of journaling around that time and writing something one day that has stuck with me ever since, which was step out of your mind and step into your body. And I had no idea what that meant at the time. I I did not understand. I was so in my head. I was in my head for the next like 10 years after I wrote that. But it was It was something that I even remember exactly what it looks like on the page, because it was just such a message that kind of came through me that the answers to what I, of moving through what I was experiencing, of moving through the the tension and the distress and the emotions that I was experiencing, wasn't going to come just from staying in my head. And that, as I would learn many, many years later, one of the best things I could do was really step into my body to learn to feel in my body and to create that sense of safety there. And so, I don't think that came from meditation so much as I do think that came from perhaps an ability that I learned early on to kind of turn inward and to question myself and to kind of go within to look for answers.
0: Did you ever have the feeling that you missed out on like a religious upbringing or because a lot of times you're around kids when you're young that um, have a different connection with spirituality or religion and you know, sometimes I have a, like, I have a friend who's an, she grew up as an atheist. She's not anymore, but I think she felt she missed out on something. Like she didn't go to church when she was younger. In fact, she was forbidden to ever go to a church when she was younger. And I kind of wonder sometimes if people have that mindset where they kind of missed out on something different than what
1: they were raised with. No, not in the slightest. You know, I'm, incredibly grateful. I think my mother from a young age really encouraged um, a sense of curiosity. You know, she'd grown up Catholic, had previously left the church, but I still went to a Catholic school. My grandfather was still Catholic. There were um, influences around that I could see that. I also knew intuitively and instinctively that it wasn't me and it wasn't for me. So the idea, you know, I was very lucky when I was in uh, primary school. So at about 10 years old, one of the religions on offer that we could choose was like the Baha'i faith. So like from a young age, I could learn to study about that. You know, as I got a bit older and I became a bit interested in Buddhism and exploring that world, it was very acceptable for me to to go where I felt called. And even now there are roots certainly in Catholicism and in Christianity that I look to. There are wonderful spiritual teachers uh, like Richard Rohr and Barbara Brown Taylor, you know, certainly from that background who I consider to have influence over my life and my spirituality now. But at the time growing up, There was never a wish for anything else there was only the understanding that other people believe differently this is uh what i from my mother's point this is what i believe to be true that god is love and love is an energy and we sometimes refer to it as the universe and that all of these different teachings and that you have the capacity to choose and i think maybe having that capacity to choose never meant that i felt like i was missing out
0: Yeah, that's kind of a fair way to be raised, really. If you have access to other belief systems, it's kind of nice. You feel like you have some power as a kid, because a lot of kids don't have power to choose.
1: Um, They're
0: they're kind of indoctrinated. They're kind of given a a religious path to follow, you know.
1: Exactly. And I, I think I've underestimated that, actually, that you're right. Most people don't have agency to choose. Even as a child, they're not taught that's something they can do. And I'm immensely grateful for that.
0: So how do you think you got into a situation where you had depression when you came from a home that was pretty loving? It sounds like, do you think that you just put too much pressure on yourself? Is that why
1: the depression and anxiety reared up? no I think there was a number of reasons for that I mean I won't go into details but you know as as a wonderful home they grew up in it wasn't without problems either and I'm certainly perfectionistic by nature there were many things that I was feeling in it as as wonderful as and this is the other thing I'd point out so many of those teachings were I don't think I entered my adolescence with a really good understanding of how to feel my emotions and what our emotions meant you know, there's a lot of self-help and personal development teachings that say that it's great to be happy, but anything, you know, there's positive and negative emotions that some are good, some are bad is what that implies. And I don't think that's true. You know, I, I think there's a really binary and simplistic way to look at it. So instead of then actually understanding that many of those things that we deem to be negative, like anger or sadness or grief or loneliness or whatever it might be, actually have a lot of things to offer us you know they're part of the human condition they have a lot of wisdom and so I think for me as an adolescent I was not equipped to deal with those emotions I didn't have the tools and there's a number of reasons for that but all of that led to an experience of you know turning emotions inward and anger inward and kind of repressing the self that's kind of what led to those experiences, which took a lot of unpacking. You know, it took a lot of like work then in my later, later years, all throughout my 20s of learning how to reconnect to my body, learning how to reconnect to my emotions, to honor my emotions, to, to know that anger is not a bad thing, that it's perfectly acceptable, that it's perfectly okay. And this to me is spiritual work that I think sometimes we, we don't talk about enough.
0: Actually, I think it's somewhat normal for teenagers to go through that. I think there's an intense emotional phase when you're a teenager, where your hormones are kind of like pushing you to the brink, you know, you you've, you're changing a lot as a teenager, you're becoming an adult. And I think your hormones kind of make you overly emotional. I mean, I, that's the way I remember feeling, but I don't know, maybe it's different from person to person, but how did you find your way out of it? I mean, you had some practices like meditation, but you weren't really into it so much And you talked about uh, plant essences when we talked earlier. How did you learn to apply those things to actually get out of um, an anxious state or a depressive state?
1: Yeah, so you know, I I think I wish I could say that there was one thing and one moment that transformed that. I think we often we we like to think that. It's kind of, we teach it like enlightenment as, you know, this one time event as well. And then we're enlightened or something. And it's, it's so rarely those like one moments. Instead, it's the kind of very unsexy, long term, day by day decisions. <laughs> Again, I bring this back to I, I knew even, even when I was in the grips of that, that it didn't, I remember having this voice that it didn't have to be my life. It didn't have to be forever. And that was near impossible to believe at certain times, but there was an element that I always knew that I could choose and find a different path and I I spent you know the better part of 10 or 15 years really exploring many different modalities from therapy which completely changed my life to plant medicine working with ayahuasca and working um, with other modalities to looking at my body and reconnecting to my body and embodiment and somatics work you know there is you know certainly meditation has been in practice as well so there hasn't been one moment or one modality but it was a conscious choosing at some point to believe that this didn't have to be the end that it was possible to experience something else and to also devote my life to something larger than myself you know i think that that's one of the things that i remember quite clearly really deciding that i wanted my life to be in service to something larger than myself and whatever that might be you know that can be humanity that can be the earth it can be you know a sense of of god or the universal or love or whatever it is there's a reason i've called my business public love enterprises it's because I think we should experience and really cultivate love in our public spaces, and so that is what it, that was a part of that journey of choosing to to learn what it would mean to go within to explore various modes of healing, to learn to understand myself, and then to commit my life in service
0: yeah, service is a pretty profound thing it's not always something you find early on, I think it's something you find maybe in your thirties forties but Can you talk about some of your experiences with ayahuasca? Because I'm always interested to know what people learn from their their journeys.
1: You know, I think plant medicine is not for everyone. I do think it's a medicine and and not a drug. You know, I think in 2023, that's also becoming more and more well known, which is which is good. But it's it's not for everyone. It's it is a very intense experience. That I really believe that those. those medicines have their own spirit and their own being attached and that was certainly my experience with them there are essences and portals for me to create a conversation to to deepen an understanding of something that perhaps they don't have in my conscious everyday awareness they're not something that i could imagine myself ever using long term but certainly they have provided moments of insight for me whether that is simply to see a pattern that perhaps i couldn't see before or to To find perhaps an area where i'd still been holding on to an element of grief or an element of loss that maybe i hadn't really healed and i didn't know that so i think they're very transformative tools but how we use them is really important and the set and setting of how we use them is of utter key as well do you remember anything in particular that you
0: realized through ayahuasca
1: i did i think there were many things that i realized and i won't go into them now but i think it was definitely an experience which allowed me to kind of shift my decisions from that. It was an ability that made me see a pattern that perhaps I hadn't, have, wouldn't have seen otherwise, or at least not for a while, and that was playing out in my relationships and and in my emotions and reactions. And once I saw that, it was I had again, I had the capacity to choose. And I think that's so much of what this conversation is about, right? The capacity to choose, the capacity to have agency. And I was very fortunate to have that as a child, and and how that has kind of transformed into my life now. That I still know that that's something that I have. So what, out of all
0: the, the things you tried, what spiritual practices do you still have in place
1: on a daily basis? I mean, meditation. I wish I could say I was completely daily. I'm not. Um, I'm like all of us. So, you know, sometimes sometimes go through phases of great discipline and then phases of not. Yeah. But meditation is a practice that I return to again and again. And that includes even just you know, formal meditation, but also more regular mindfulness practices of really noticing my body of of learning what it's feeling and where it's feeling it and why. I would say also practices of prayer. I don't follow a particular religion, but I do pray. And I think that there's power in saying what is on our heart and in asking for what we desire. And on top of that, I, I think, you know, it's this idea of returning to service. I think sometimes we have a vision of spirituality in this world that is very self-based. And for me, my understanding of a deeper spirituality, a more robust spirituality, is one that also acts. It's one that is embodied, and therefore, it is one that is in service. So, coming back to, well, what is my purpose? What, how, how can I be of service today in whatever capacity that might be? Is a spiritual practice that I return to regularly. So, who receives your prayer?
0: Who out there in the ether <laughs> is receiving a
1: prayer? That's a great question. I wish I knew. You know, my definition of God is it's very energy-based. It's very, I think all of us are individuations of that energy. So I don't know who's hearing it or if I even really could understand fully who is hearing it. But I trust that there is something, that there is an energy that is conscious, that is aware, that is larger than myself, that has the capacity to.
0: It's kind of a leap of faith type thing, I guess. I I don't think it could hurt to pray (laughs) necessarily. But um, that's interesting that, I mean, a lot of people seem to have an idea of who's out there in a way, but it's always interesting when it's kind of an open-ended question of who's out there.
1: Yeah. You know, I think there's so much like, it's very easy to picture, you know, I could like put my kind of ideas and identities and stories and things onto this, you know, onto this energy, but I don't think that it really is that. I think, honestly, the more we strip away our identities, the more that we understand who and what is still there, the energy that is in us underneath our identities. That's the energy that I'm praying to. So it's it's a little difficult to say who is there, except that I, I think it's love. I think it's a form of love.
0: Well, I mean, God has been likened to love, so it would make sense in a way. You know, if your practice is generally to be of service to other people, then you're you're doing a godly type work. You know, you're you're making a godly effort in the world to change it with love.
1: Well, I think all of us have a vocation. We all have a calling. You know, I, I think to, the vocate, the term vocation is you know quite religious and its in its kind of often used, But I think all of us do have those little voices and those little intuitions and those little things that speak to us that say yes, like this. This is my work. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And if we don't, it's our job to kind of look at where that this might be. It's not always a career path for some people. It's many different spaces of our lives. But wherever that little calling is, that to me is the work of our soul. That's the work of God. And it's not always religious or spiritual necessarily in in its appearance. But wherever that calling is, to me, that is the work of God.
0: How do you guide people that you're coaching, do you use any of these techniques with them? Do you encourage them to meditate or not?
1: Absolutely. Although I am really conscious that, you know, I work with many folks who are burnt out and exhausted or trying to find their next path in life. And we so often use meditation as like this kind of band aid, you know, like, like, I'm just, you know, we teach it as like a productivity tool, right? That if you just, you know, if you're like my, yeah, if you stop multitasking. If you're like more mindful, you can get like X amount more done. You know, we teach it in these corporates. And that is to me, not the essence of meditation, or at least those are wonderful side benefits, but they're not what it is actually capable of. And it's not really using it as a transformative tool. So I do encourage all of my clients to develop a meditation practice. Some do, some don't, I think it speaks to everyone, uh, what is true for them, but it has the ability to offer us guidance, And the ability to offer us a sense of stability that we often don't have um, if we if we don't have any sort of stillness practice. And for me, this meditation, although other people will find their stillness practice in surfing, other people going into a flow state. Other people will find it in in nature, getting outside and getting away from everything and being in the silence. So what is your stillness practice is really what I encourage people to find and whatever can help them go within. Because all of my work is about self-work. It's about self-work in, in the world. It's self-work for world work. So if we can't go within and do that first layer of getting to know ourselves and understand ourselves, then we're always going to be a little bit limited there. Are you open to ideas like hypnotherapy? Absolutely, I think there is some, some power in hypnotherapy. Um, I've seen hypnotherapists many years ago. I don't think it's my path, um, but I definitely think there is. So what tools do you give your
0: clients besides meditation? Do you have other things that you encourage them to do?
1: So I work a lot with helping changemakers to get free. And what I mean there is really this idea of detoxing from culture, detoxing from the energies of capitalism, of patriarchy, of supremacy culture, and really exploring the ways these toxic systems in the world show up in us, as us, and through us. So in working with people, um, and usually people who perhaps they care about the climate crisis that we're in, or they care about, you know, the the rising wage gap that we're seeing at the moment, and they're like, okay, well, I want to do something about this, but not everything that we do is on the outside, the outside matters, and it is necessary, and it is so important. But it's also about going within and seeing, well, how am I carrying out these energies? How am I glorifying overworking? How am I still going into work when I'm sick? How am I, you know, still living out this experience of time scarcity, that there's never enough time, you know, thank God it's Friday, (laughs) or like, how was your weekend? You know, it was fine, but, you know, it wasn't long enough. It's all over our language. Like, scarcity is embedded into our experiences, and a lot of the time that is because of capitalism. It's part of the society that we live in, but then we've also internalized it into our psyches and into into our sense of who we are. You know, I'm not good enough. I can never do enough, or I've never done enough, or I can never have enough. And so my work is really an encouraging people to look at how those processes show up. We do this through inquiry, we do this through questions, through writing, um, and then starting to do this work of disentangling themselves from it. So what would it mean to to choose again? What would it mean to take the uncomfortable choice here? What would it mean to to start to frame my life in a way that was actually abundant? That was uh, that was you know free of this sense of scarcity and to feel more powerful and to have more agency over our decisions what would it mean like to actually be the change we want to see in the world and that's an incredible Gandhi quote that has been so co-opted into you know this bumper car slogan type thing you know be the change you want to see in the world but what would that actually mean to be that at your thoughts your words your actions at every level of the system of us you know how do we create? spirituality, not just as something's happening in our head or our hearts, but actually embodied in practice in the world. And to me, that's what politics should be. And that's what I would like it to be. So that's what I'm really guiding people to do. Go within, explore it, figure out what's theirs, and go forth and live it into the world.
0: That's pretty cool that you're working with that idea of scarcity. I've often thought that, that we're like... And we're kind of bombarded on like Instagram and everywhere really with these ideas, like quotes, spiritual quotes and different things. It isn't really possible to process those constantly throughout the day and have them be meaningful. You almost have to take some time off of work or you almost have to like be away from the fray to even comprehend these spiritual truths to experience them at all and understand them and start implementing them, I guess. I don't know how you change a busy, frenetic world because every single thing is pushing us to be busy and frenetic all day long. That's why I often silence my phone, not just when I'm podcasting, but nowadays I I silence my phone almost all the time because the constant clicking and ticking and chiming of that goddamn phone drives me nuts it's like, it's constantly reminding me that, oh, I forgot to do this. Oh, I got to do that. Oh, there's another thing tomorrow. I can't stand it anymore. So more and more I've kind of disengaged in my own way. And, you know, that sometimes means that I miss calls. (laughs) I have to catch up with my phone later in the day sometimes. And I think, oh, people tried to reach me and it was important, you know, and I guess I have to weigh it up, like when to do that and when not to, but It's like everything in the world is pushing me to be super responsive and to always be doing something in any given moment, I guess. And I don't know how to disengage from that totally.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, exactly. This is what I refer to as internalized capitalism. We've equated our worth with our productivity or with what we produce. And, you know, there's kind of a few different spaces here. There's one, I think we can do something in the world about this. There is outer work for this. You know, France has adopted a wonderful new law that basically says that companies can't email their staff outside of working hours. Like, yeah, try doing that in North America. Right? <laughs> it's a it's a whole other world. Like, that's revolutionary. So there's absolutely things we can be doing externally. But it's to me, this is inner work, right? So to me, if we want to really disrupt this energy in the world, we need to learn to do it ourselves and i think we benefit hugely from taking time out from going on retreats from taking a space away from our ordinary lives it is something i do and i try to practice regularly and i think that we have far more capacity to make changes in our lives than we like to think we do because ultimately it is again this unsexy work of everyday choices in every moment of every day what are we choosing can we have like um you know, do we have a lot of noise on in the background? Are we running at a million miles to do things? Are we overcommitting and saying yes to things? Or can we stop and pause and ask myself, why am I saying yes to this? Why am I doing this? Where is this feeling being driven from? And what can I do to sit with it and explore it and really kind of dive a little bit deeper? You know, I have had, you know, I, I call myself a recovering perfectionist. And, you know, a lot of that experience of being a, you know, perfectionistic and feeling like you're never quite enough is driven from this sense of scarcity. And you can spend your whole life running after it and trying to fill it and everything else, but you never quite get there. And that is the standard life approach that we're taught, right, as well of it. Just get the right job, just get the right degree, marry the right person, take the next step, next thing. Happiness is always somewhere else, you know, because it's never where we are. Right. So this relationship between scarcity and growth is, is really intricate, it's really interesting, I think so much of spiritual teachings are kind of straddling this in the wrong direction as well, but these are spaces that we can explore and go deeper and we can choose again. We can choose to take our lives back, to take our attention back, to take our energy back and to kind of, you know, disentangle ourselves from the frenetic busyness of everything around us.
0: So I'm curious with your clients, if they do learn to disentangle themselves somewhat from the high paced environment maybe that they work in. Is it a long term change? Or is it simply a short term change? And then they just revert?
1: I mean, I think that's about choice. You know, this comes down to that thing. I think a lot of people certainly the people that I work with, you know, in the change space, we are looking to make long term change. Because it's not just about our own lives. It's also about the outer system of capitalism, which is driving the climate crisis. So we know that if if that's what we care about and that's where we want our work to be then this has to be long term change but I also think this question a little bit is this idea of well is change an event and then after that event I'm just you know fixed and then I never have to do it again and and it's not this is a constant practice of of slowness When we live in a world as busy as what we live in, when we live in a world that constantly tells us each and every day that we are not enough and that you're not enough and that you need to buy something in order to be enough, then we need to really cultivate a practice that is daily about slowing down and about going within and about exploring what's true for us.
0: Definitely, I mean, without a doubt, I think. I like what you said about always kind of looking to the future for happiness, how ingrained that is in society in general. Um, I've had that a lot. I've had like, well, if I just get another training or get another degree or whatever, and it doesn't really change anything, then you just feel like, well, maybe you should have gotten a different degree, or maybe you should have done a different training or, you know, it, it like never seems to go away. There's like, like I've big
1: siren behind you. (laughs) Yes, uh, it's actually 27 floors down. Oh. Um, would you like to wait until it passes? Yeah, maybe we should wait a second. Yeah, you know, and I, I spent a lot of my, my 20s really looking to find happiness in the next place. You know, I, I'm a travel lover for for many reasons beyond this, you know, what I'm about to say. Like, I love the world. I love different cultures, different landscapes. You know, I've lived in five different countries But, you know, I also spent a lot of time always thinking that happiness would be in the next place that, okay, well, I'm not entirely happy with my life. And I, you know, change it up radically for a little bit. And it makes a big difference, right? And sometimes this is good. There is something to be said, actually, sometimes you should radically change things up, do the course, do the study, move country, do what you need to do. But when we're doing it as the, as the kind of solution of like, well, maybe I'll be happier there, like, you know, it's that is it Jack cornfield I think who said that you know wherever you go there you are and (laughs) I think that's kind of what we're seeing here with a lot of perfectionism with a lot of anybody who's kind of always looking for happiness in a future place is that well maybe in the next place me and my problems won't be there and for a little bit sometimes they're not but then usually without fail after a little while exactly they come back and that discontent comes back and so Having the ability to kind of explore, well, where is that discontent coming from? And to me, that is spiritual work. Any sort of going within and looking at what we're really experiencing is spiritual work, then that's that's the place for us to be.
0: Yeah, I think it's life is such an ongoing process of getting to know yourself and also getting to know where you're happy, where you're not happy. And You know, sometimes I've had that experience. I've lived in different places as well. I've had that experience that it's very stimulating to move somewhere new and discover everything about that area and meet new friends. But then it can be also there's a side of drudgery to this where (laughs) you're bringing all your stuff somewhere and you're starting from scratch again and you start to feel kind of like overwhelmed by that change. And then you start to think, well, you know, it's taken me a long time to meet new people. And then you can be hard on yourself for that. So it's tough. You know, you have to have a certain extroversion probably to move around a lot or to travel a lot for a job. I don't know if I'm extroverted enough maybe to constantly be traveling.
1: But uh... yeah, you know, and that's certainly something that as my life changes, I look for more and more roots and more and more stability and things that I didn't need before. But I think for me, finding that difference between, well, am I running away hoping that happiness will be in the next place? Or am I actually actively looking and, and following a calling it comes down to this idea of going within and seeing, well, what is driving this? Is this this little voice in me that says, yes, this, you know what? Great. Let's do it. That's really exciting. Or like, it's kind of terrifying and really stressful, but let's give it a go because something in me is saying, yes. That is the voice that we want to follow. And that is something that I think we do not listen to enough in our culture. So many of us, we've learned, you know, at a very young age to, to disconnect from that voice, because a lot of the time it tells us things that aren't necessarily acceptable by our families, by our culture, by, you know, the standard life approach or whatever it might be. But that is the voice. And to me, again, that's a spiritual voice that we're listening to that says, yes, this. And if we're kind of thinking about moving and doing that next thing, but it's just because, you know what, I'm really unhappy and I don't know if it's going to be any good and there's no big yes voice. It's more just like, oh, well, maybe um, that's the kind of subtle difference there. But it's definitely, I think, a lot of work to really get to know that and, and to explore that and to understand the difference between the two. And I think it's trial and error, too. Sometimes, you know, you're really learning what those voices are simply by following one and then being like, OK, maybe I was wrong. And how can I listen better next time? It's going to be so different from person to person. I think um, I've heard so many stories,
0: just even having the podcast, like, you know, where people have like beautiful experiences moving to another country and, you know, acclimating to that. And it was their calling maybe, but then there's other situations where people got into a lot of uncomfortable situations that maybe changed their life for the worse. So yeah. it, it can go either way. But how many, like, so you've lived in, you were born and raised in Australia. You live in Toronto now. Where else have you lived?
1: Uh, I've lived in London, Dublin, and Amsterdam as well.
0: Wow. Okay. You got to talk a little bit about living in London and Dublin.
1: I'm curious. London's amazing. It's a wonderful city. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Um, uh, Yeah, on earth is a big call. Certainly one of my favorite places to live. Um, You know, it's, it's, big but it's diverse and it's beautiful and the weather is terrible um (laughs) as an australian i do find it very difficult even in toronto here the gray skies is like it it can really get to you but absolutely fantastic and and dublin you know dublin is a wonderful city but i moved there for the wrong reasons i really moved there at a time when i didn't feel cold there i i saw it as a safe choice that was a little bit I, i didn't want to go back to australia i didn't know where i wanted to be i wanted to move to amsterdam but it was nervous about it. And I, you know, I didn't speak Dutch. And so I was like, you know, I don't know how easy it will be. And so I made a safe choice that was really based out of scarcity and based out of fear to move to Ireland. And I didn't have a wonderful experience there. wonderful country, beautiful people, you know, love, love Ireland, but for me, it wasn't the place for that I wanted to live. Um, and that for me was a real lesson there in understanding, well, what is driving me and moving? What is driving me and traveling? And where is that coming from? So why was Amsterdam such a Mecca for you? You know, it's funny. I still don't know. I The moment I went there, my first visit, uh, I immediately fell at home. I just felt at home. It felt so natural to me. Very few places have felt that natural to me. And I I still absolutely adore that city. It's, it's somewhere that I'll always return to.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I've been there once. It was a long time ago. And it's a very tolerant city. It's known for that. But I I didn't have any special feeling there. I do like Holland and I like Belgium as well. The food was quite good.
1: <laughs> yes, the fries, the fries and mayo, I do oh love that. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, to me it was an energetic thing. I really do believe when you go certain places you can kind of you, you either connect or you don't connect. It just you resonates. Feel the energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm really big on that. Wherever I wherever I go, whoever I meet, there is an energy thing that I am sensing. And for me, Amsterdam and London, parts of London definitely have that. Um, And so it's really great to be able to explore where I feel that and where I don't in the world and try and use that as a guide. And how do you think Canada is different from those places? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's much more North American. You know, I I think as an Australian, in some ways, Canada is a little bit like a cold Australia. Certainly both part of the Commonwealth. there's, There's shared things there there's a lot of similarities, but you know, culture wise, it's definitely more American. You see that with the tax and the tipping and it, it, a whole bunch of wonderful things across this country. So it's very different, uh, very different to Europe, certainly in terms of the way the cities are designed, the way people live in them, um, yeah. much more built around the car much more built around, um, you know, high rises and things in different spaces, but it's Boy, a beautiful do- country, Canada. You've got the French-speaking side, though, which makes it a little more interesting, right? Yes, which is also a little bit more European. It's really interesting. Montreal and and Quebec in general is beautiful. I'd love to see more of Quebec, but, you know, there's a little bit, you can see that influence there. And you can also, to me, I think you can feel it a little bit in the slowness as well,
0: certainly compared
1: to Toronto. So do you think you
0: would go back to Amsterdam in the future?
1: Uh, You know, you never know. At this stage, uh, visa-wise, I'm not part of the EU, so it's, uh, we'll see what happens in the world. But more than likely, I think I will end up probably splitting my life between the UK and Australia once, once the Canada uh, experience is out of my system. That's,
0: well, that's safe, you know. I mean, you've got a little diversity there. I think that I've never been to Australia, actually, but it seems different enough from the UK that it would be a little more exciting to tandem your life between those
1: two places Well exactly and my pa- my partner's British as well, so you know this is when we're kind of uh, you're, when you're from two different sides of the world, you need to kind of uh, decide where you kind of want to be, and I think we'll probably settle in both for periods of time so it Australia's a wonderful place, it's just very far from everything
0: yeah. Well, Laura, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your insight. We will leave a link to your website in the show notes for this episode if anybody wants to get coaching with you or
1: connect. Thank you, Evie, for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here and thank you for the conversation. Yeah, likewise.
0: Beautiful listener, please leave your questions or comments for this episode at disembodiedpodcast.com. Thank you.